Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 52. In this episode, I speak with Natalie Douglas and Amy Wonka about implementation science and power differentials in research practice partnerships. In full disclosure, this episode is used in part to provide content to prepare attendees who have enrolled in a two-day virtual conference we were sponsoring at the end of April, focused on implementation science and partnerships in communication sciences and disorders. However, the content is accessible for those in many fields. After listening, if you're interested in attending, registration is open until Monday, April 24th at info.mghihp.edu backslash is for all, which I'll link in the show notes and on the podcast website. After April 24th, the content will still be available to view for a reduced price. Big shout out to the conference committee, you know who you are, for thoughtfully planning a conference that actively engages participants online and showcases partnerships working towards improved evidence-based practice in both educational and medical settings. After listening to this episode, don't forget to check out the website, www.seeherspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Welcome to episode 52 of See, Here Speak podcast. Today, I have guest Natalie Douglas. Natalie, I'm so happy to have you. Can you start by introducing yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be here. So I am a professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Central Michigan University. And I also am part-time an editor for the adult section of the Informed SLP. Fantastic. Okay, well, we're going to launch right in because... We're here today to talk about implementation science and the role that partnerships play in implementation science. But let's start with the basics. So what is implementation science and why do we need it? Right. So implementation science gives us tools to really work on the research to practice gap. So I think all of us in our field probably can agree on that the research to practice gap is unacceptable. So helpful research that we know works more in controlled settings, it doesn't get into the real world fast enough. And then a lot of research is not applicable to real world clinical situations. So I think that implementation science offers us a variety of tools to address all of these problems. And what's the history of implementation science in our field of CSD in particular? Right. So it's fascinating because it's a relatively recent history considering. So my understanding is that in about 2011 is when some of the murmurings of implementation science started taking place in our field. So Dr. Leslie Alswang, Nancy Minghetti, and one of my mentors, Dr. Jackie Hinckley, they attended an event known as the Global Implementation Conference in 2011. And then in 2013, there was kind of more communication science and disorder representation at that Global Implementation Conference. And then I think a really large catalyst for our field was in 2014, the American Speech Language Hearing Foundation held an implementation science summit. And what they did was they brought in not only clinical researchers who may be interested in this type of work, but they also brought in experts in the field of implementation science. And from that point, I think we really started to move quite quickly. So there was a special issue in implementation science the next year in the Journal of Speech, Language, and Hearing Research. Then also ASHA developed the CRISP committee, which is a research and implementation and evidence-based practice committee. There have been numerous other special interests in special issues of journals that have come out. There was one in 2017, 2019, 2022. Um, And then another really interesting 
piece for our field was that in 2018, the American Speech Language Hearing Foundation started a new funding mechanism known as the Researcher Practitioner Partnership Grant, which is super relevant to this conference. So that's really exciting. And then last year we had the inaugural um, IS conference in our field. So really when we look at the past decade, it's incredible to me to see the changes that have happened in a relatively short amount of time. It's super exciting. And you've been such a pioneer in that area. I did not know that Dr. Hinckley was your mentor. That's really exciting to hear how you kind of came about this. So were you her student when she went to that conference or how did that work out? I was, I was. So she um, was my doctoral student mentor and right when I got to the University of South Florida, Dean Fixen, who's known as like a grandfather of implementation science and his group, they were just leaving the University of South Florida to go to UNC Chapel Hill. And that's where that whole group is now. Um, they have active implementation frameworks and all of those various aspects. I mean, they do tons with implementation. Well, they had just left University of South Florida when I was arriving. And it was Jackie Hinckley who gave me this monograph of fixins from 2005. And I opened it and I was just like, you have got to be kidding me right now. I, it just was mind blowing what I was like, this, this can really help us. What a, what a pivotal moment. And I just think we all stand on the shoulders of these giants that you mentioned as we're moving forward, right? Like we, we don't function in a vacuum and so grateful for those mentorship moments. And and, you know, I have to say your paper you wrote in 2015, I want to put that as a big factor, I think, in my own experience of really thinking through implementation science and seeing it as so important was the paper you wrote, Implementation Science, Buzzword or Game Changer? Love that paper because it's so true, because I think it really also hits on the zeitgeist, because at the time, mm-hmm. I think there was this feeling of like, ugh, we already do that. Or we, of course we're doing implementation. We're clinician researchers. I felt like it was almost seen as like a buzzword and you really hit it, you know, like, no, this is the scientific process. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you a story about this paper. If it's inappropriate, you can cut it out. (laughs) This This is behind the curtain. Yes. And maybe this will be encouraging to someone. I don't know, but this is a true story. So I had a gap between when I finished my master's and started my PhD altogether about 10 years. Um, And so I was not really in those academic circles. Like at that time, I would never have been invited to submit to a special issue or I didn't even know what that meant, like a special issue in a journal. But I had had that paper like somewhat written because I had just graduated in the middle of 2013. And I'd had that paper kind of written as like part of my dissertation publications that I was going to try to get out. Mm -hmm. And then somebody had told me there's a special interest, um, like a special issue of JSLHR that's going to come out about implementation science. And like, I think most of the authors were like invited to submit and I was not because nobody knew who I was or I didn't know anybody. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to submit it anyway, even though I wasn't invited. And so I submitted it. I wrote a letter to the editor and I was like, hi, um, you don't know me and no one knows me, but I have this paper. I think it's going to fit with your special issue. You know, would you mind giving it a review? You know, and I didn't say it exactly like that, but yeah, it was definitely like, because I actually was going to submit it to AJSLP because I didn't think that, you know, JSLHR would even be interested in it. But anyway, so then I it ended up getting through. So but I was not invited. It was not I was not known. So it was just something that was there and the timing was right. And they were very gracious to review it and include it. But that wasn't well, the initial plan. <laughs> I'm so glad you said told me that story because I think it also just. Wow. You're so brave. And I'm so glad. And I always, my kids are always in this growth mindset. Like they say the word yet. So when you say no one knew who mm-hmm. I was, I wanted to be like a big yet. <laughs> now, <laughs> now you are such a phenomenal leader in implementation science and look at the bravery you had, like 
bravo to take the chance and get out there. And I think it also, it's, you know, we haven't got to this yet, but I think that's also a huge part of the power differential that happens, right? Because yeah, it's always this in club, right? You know, it's yeah. like you're in and then it's like, you're not in or you're in. And yes, it's yes, like, yes, you're, yes. it's, but you know what I've noticed? I really think that in club happens at a total happenstance a lot of times. And is not like really a mean girl situation. No, just like yes. a, I don't know who, you know, cause I'm doing a special issue right now. And I hated the, th- the fact that I had to invite people. I would have been thrilled if someone would have wrote me and said, consider this because that's yes. the thing is that you don't, you don't want to exclude, but you do sometimes. And so I do think that's just, thank you for telling that story. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. And honestly, that is a big part, I think of research practice partnerships. And still, I'm still, I'm under this new funding mechanism and I'm like, they don't know me. They think I'm dumb, you know, and it's all of this self-talk that I think can really prevent us from having real partnerships. Cause I don't think, you know, and I hope we conveyed this in the power paper too, which we'll talk about in a minute, I think, but I don't think, like you said, no one's coming at this from a place of like ill will. Like I'm going to exclude clinicians because they're terrible and they don't know anything. I don't think anybody's doing that, but it still is happening. Right. And so it's being okay enough, like our own inner okayness to be like, all right, I'm going to put myself out there. Sometimes it's going to land. Sometimes it's not going to land and, you know, do the best we can. Absolutely. Now you've inspired me to tell a bit of an embarrassing story. Ooh, yeah. I know. And we can always edit, right? But I, I'm not good at that. So probably not. Um, so here's my story about this is that I'm working with a local school district and I am just so excited to work with them. They're they're doing amazing things, and I'm just so in awe of educators in general, but especially right now, there's just so much going on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we've been chatting and I'm just so excited to be a part of this and they're trying to go after some funding locally. And they Mm -hmm. say, you know, we just need a big name. And I'm like, okay. So I'm like thinking, thinking, I'm like, okay, what, like what kind of big name? And they're like, Hey dummy, you're the big name. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what? Yes. I love it. Right. And they're like, we just need you in this. And I'm like, well, I'm all in. And it was just, I'm even embarrassed saying this story because it was like, oh, but I don't know. It just, because we carry who we are from the day one of little babies that we're just in that mode. And I'm like, and I think it's also because of the power differential that you write about that it's almost like automatically I'm somehow supposed to realize that I'm doing this contribution, but ultimately I see the clinician and practitioner is doing the major contribution. Oh my gosh. I'm in awe of, right? So, but then they're like, okay, because I'm on this pedestal, I'm in academia, you know, I have my name in lights because I'm an author. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. A million percent. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> well, I, I love keep that. referring to this paper. So you did write this paper and it's focused on the power dynamics of research practice partnerships, which, you know, we know is the backbone of implementation science. You cannot make it happen without it. Um, and it's so critically important. And so when you wrote this paper, what prompted you to write it? You know, it was a couple of different things, but for one, it was a lot of my own personal experience in being a clinician and transitioning to academia. And then once I was in academia, having those really frank and genuine conversations with other clinicians who would tell me, you know, like, oh man, I didn't know that you could email the article, the author article directly and talk to them and ask a question or even ask a question to have a copy of the article, you know, if it was behind a paywall or something, you know, and I just, you know, there's nothing that I can do that um, is the same level as a researcher. And I'm just like, what? Like, that is so wild, you know? And I think that the other piece that I and the group of people um, who wrote this paper 
we wrote it together, we were reflecting on, you know, I think, and I don't know how explicit this is, or I'm curious your thoughts on this, but I do think there's this underlying message that clinicians should not only be able to like consume and evaluate evidence-based practice, but also even be responsible for interpreting the details of, of study designs, right? To where it's like, okay, well, I know it was this level, so I, I shouldn't necessarily do that. And I just really wanted to think about, you know, we know that they don't have time in their workday to engage in those types of activities. And it's not a matter of them not having the intellectual capacity for it. I'm certain that they do. It's just, it's just they have a different role. It's a different set of skills. And so thinking about what is the best use of everybody's limited time, right? Everybody, researchers, clinicians, practitioners, educators, clinical supervisors, everybody is kind of operating on a time famine. So how do we maximize this? And so really reflecting on those things and especially with the clinician co-authors of the paper is kind of what prompted it. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes such good sense. And I've often, I really resonated with me because I've talked about um, currency. It's something I've thought about in my relationships, right? So I almost like, just try to cut to the chase almost immediately when I'm working with clinical partners to say, what is your currency? What gets you where you need to go in your career? Yeah. I just tell them flat out, like for me to move forward and to continue to do this research, I have to publish, I have to obtain grants. I have to mentor. It's such a, all these things are privileges, but I still, they are my currency. I have to do them. So, um, and I have to teach courses. So these are the things I have to do. And then it's nice because it gets this kind of reflection. A lot of my school partners are like, okay, we have to show, we have to have good student outcomes. We have to implement the, you know, we have to implement things that we don't really have decisions around. We have to implement them. We have to report to parents. We have to report to our school committee And so then it's helped me to think about with the currency, how can I work with them to take a publication, which is my currency, but then create a currency that works for them because the publication isn't going to be their currency. No, no, it's maybe an infographic or a video video to share with parents or a parent letter or things like that. I think it's, you know, something, it just really resonated because I think it goes to this relationship and trying to figure out, I like your time famine comment. And you know what? I have to tell you now that there's a lot of firsts going on right now. Firsts of telling some stories like this. And the other first is I have to read verbatim a paragraph from your paper because it just, Oh my gosh. I know it was pure magic. So I'm going to read it because it just okay. says it all. And I just, I have to read it for our listeners. And okay. truthfully, I don't think it's behind a pay line, but maybe it it's is. not. It's, it's open not. access. Oh, good. I'm so glad. That's great. Cause of course that's a huge issue uh, as well. Sure. Uh, but I still have to read it. So it starts with once treatment efficacy has been documented, it's assumed that publications and continuing education on the topic will result in transfer of evidence to routine practice. Embedded within this assumption is that clinicians have the tools, organizational support, time, and resources to appraise the rigor of the research, tailor it to their setting, and then implement the practice in their setting. Furthermore, this assumes that the researcher's original research question is of value and importance to the end user of the research, both the clients who receive it and the clinicians who provide it, the urgent needs of our clients with communication and related disorders who each deserves the best evidence-based practices, compels us to reflect deeply on the traditional research process, the production of knowledge, the assumption of evidence, and the gap between research and practice. Our hope is that this discussion will support efforts to increase the quantity and quality of research practice partnerships and clinician researcher collaborations, ultimately resulting in better services to our clients with communication and related disorders. Pure gold spun right from your fingers. Uh, It is amazing. And it says it all. It says it. It says it all. It's really the crux of the problem. It is. And I now, I, you know, now that I've thoroughly probably embarrassed you, but I, I just, I can't, I'm not even going to apologize. <laughs> I'm not even going to apologize. Um, I'm wanting you then to, now that we've set that stage, can you tell me about some of the way you dug into this at the micro, meso, and macro level about these py- power dynamics that you talk about in the article? 
Sure. Thank you for that. That's very generous of you. And um, all the co-authors, Jackie Hinckley, Kate Grimbaugh, Julie Firestein, Amy Wonka, Megan Schleep, Jennifer Oshida. I believe we have everybody. Um, it was a very large team, um, but yes, that's very generous of you. So this was really interesting because we were alerted to this model out of sociology. Um, and it's um, the paper is from Rora 2021. And they were talking and they were very generous in allowing us to um, reproduce the figure as well. But one of the things that you said, Tiffany, a little bit earlier is you said, I'm in academia, my name's in lights because I'm an author. And to me, that's an example of macro levels of power. So it's this idea that it's, yes, individual actions matter. And of course, how we treat one another, our attitudes and beliefs, those would be under the micro level. But this is also kind of the water that we're swimming in, right? So it's not just individual behaviors and choices, but at the macro level of power, we're talking about what is the historical norms? What are the cultural factors? How is power and resources, how are those typically distributed, right? And who is doing the majority of the teaching? And I think historically we can say that like the academy, I mean, it's called the academy, <laughs> crying out loud. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, hello, um, put on a pedestal, yes. you know, it just is. The word doctors are put on a pedestal. Um, and that's a historical kind of cultural factor. And this is what got kind of complicated in the paper that we really didn't address. But, you know, there's no way to disentangle this from race, oh, ethnicity, yeah. Yeah. gender, socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. um, all of these factors certainly play a role. And I completely have to own, mm -hmm. you know, the privilege that I have as an educated cis white woman, the majority, you know, the 99% of what speech language pathologists are. Um, but I do think it's helpful to acknowledge these kind of wider, more macro factors that really make up the socio-political and cultural context. And then at the mezzo or kind of that middle level is where you have maybe your individual research team or your individual workplace team where you're working, right? So how are decisions made? Is there true joint decision-making? Is there authentic kind of consensus building? And this is where we talk a little bit about who benefits from participating in the research, right? I think many people recognize that when you're a research participant, you may not benefit right off the bat. You might, right? But a lot of the research we do in this field is for the long game, right? So you're essentially making an investment for hopefully better outcomes in the future, maybe somewhat now. Um, but when we think about partnering with clinicians and families, you know, it's they are essentially sacrificing something to participate usually. Usually it's time, resources, energy. And because it's not their currency, as you said, they're not really benefiting from this research process. So acknowledging that across those different levels, I think can be a helpful step in the right direction. I think it's almost like for, when I think about my clinical partners, I feel like we are, there's a storm going on and we have, we're in a shelter. Yes. We're just like hanging out like, Hey, we should probably do this. They're in the storm. Oh my gosh. And yes. then we're just like sitting there like, Oh, it's fine. Even just, I was thinking there's just so many levels and this paper really highlights it. Just the levels of assumptions, you know, yeah. for instance, like we have more, my, my schedule is infinitely more flexible than my clinical partners. Right. Oh my gosh. A million right? percent. Right. Yeah. And you talked about too, this like team dynamic, like the, you know, we do have job guidelines, but we also have a lot of flexibility in making our choices about what we do, right? Yes. It's like we do have quote unquote bosses, but it's different in academia in some ways. We're kind of our own boss. Yes. I, mean, I just, 
I think it goes back to this, this overarching privilege that you acknowledge, which I acknowledge too, the same is that, you know, in the paper, you highlight this. And I remember listening to the SLP Nerdcast and hearing this disclaimer and thinking through Yes. And uh, Amy and your co-authors, Amy and Kate, they have a podcast, the SLP Nerdcast, and as part of their beginning of their podcast, they say, uh, what do they say? They say, um, where is it? I just lost it here. Oh, right here. They say, we are not PhDs, but we research our material. Now, as a podcast host who does have a PhD, that would never occur to me to even say that. Yes. Right. That right there shows the water we're swimming in and what we take yeah. for granted. hundred percent. And that I remember through this process, this was, that was one of the things I said, why do you say that? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we, we have to, you know, we just feel like we don't, we want people to know. And I mean, Kate and Amy, they look into stuff with like a level of depth that I would never, I mean, they're, they're so thoughtful and careful and it's just, you know, it's fascinating to think that they still feel the need to give that type of disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I have to say that, uh, you mentioned the conference last year and, you know, this is, this is part of pre-work for the yes. conference this year. And one thing is that the conference was well-received. I think we had such an awesome experience in general, but it was very research, even though I tried, right. You're trying, yeah. but you're not, you, you can't speak for other people's lived experiences. So one of right, the best right. things we did was really try to incorporate feedback from clinicians as we're creating this conference this year, much I think better, but we we could always make improvements because we don't have the lived experience or our lived experience as clinicians is old now. Like I say, yes, I was a clinician, but really outdated. Yeah, I feel that way too. Right. But one of the things that really struck me is that in our feedback, which we, you know, really combed through. And again, Mm -hmm. a lot of it was positive, but you know, you're always looking for the critical feedback. It doesn't matter if there's all the positive, but, and that's the feedback that makes you grow. There was a comment that basically said implementation science makes it seem like a clinician has to wait around for a researcher to save them. And I think, oh, it's bad, bad. I thought, oh, my God, how did that come across? I feel like it's the opposite, but I don't. But but I totally respect that experience. And it's so true. Look at Asha. I go to Asha. And you go to the award ceremony. Yeah. How many members of ASHA are practitioners? How, how many members of ASHA are in the the academy? Right. Who do the awards go to? 90% of the awards go to those in the academy. Oof. Right? That's painful. It's painful. It's like, it. oh, it perpetuates this so much. It's so hard. I do think ASHA Foundation has tried to really, with the amazing leadership of Nancy Mangetti has tried yes. to really focus on some of these power differentials. And I'm excited yes. at the conference. Our very last panel uh, is led by Crystal Alonzo and she has gotten together the the latest um, winners of those grants. To oh, awesome. Yeah, so I'm super excited because we can hear about what that grant has done and I know it has made a difference. But some of these yeah. truths are just so painful and true. They need to be spoken. They have to be, they have to shine light on them. And you do that in this paper. We do. And it's one of those things that I think about, like, if you care about something enough, you're willing to speak those hard truths, right? And I just think that what we have to offer as a profession in terms of helping people to read, to communicate, to eat, mm. I mean, these are basic functions that make us human, right? And so if we can almost get out of our own way, right, we can, I think, accelerate progress. Yes, I do think it's, you're hard pressed to find a researcher that doesn't want to have a clinical impact. I think especially in our field, right? But it's so, like, how do you create that clinical impact? And two things really resonate with me. From what I've learned about implementation science and one is the the fit to the context you know I remember yes. reading the paper I think it's Bauer and Kitchener from 2019 where they really highlight 
the fact that it's not the effect size. Like that's the what reigns supreme in interview yeah, yeah, yeah. work as a researcher. You're like, oh my gosh, my effect size, which is the difference between those who got the intervention and those who didn't, like how much of an impact did that intervention have? If you have a yeah. large effect size, you're just like on the cloud nine. You're like, this works. Oh this my gosh, amazing, yeah. Right? You're like, this is the holy grail. However, yeah. it's not because what makes it into practice really has nothing to do with the effect size, but it has everything to do with how well it matches the clinical context, which just was like the biggest mind blown moment for me of like, that is it. So it's not a research to practice gap. It's a practice to research gap, meaning that we don't think about what's needed, what's happening in practice for our research. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's such a, and the other piece that really struck me from the conference last year too, is that you just have to make small steps. Agree. Right. And I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. Little steps make huge impact. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but it really is true. (laughs) It does sound cliche, doesn't it? It's like, just take a, just take a little step. (laughs) True. When I had Kathy on the podcast, Kathy Binger, she was really highlighting this by like, you can be doing the most basic science, but even just doing a focus group around your end user. And there I you think, go. You know, a lot of, I mean, I think, you know, we see this in a lot of technology. They always do user interface design now. It's like all yes. the things, right? A hundred percent. I mean, that's what somebody told me at an implementation meeting several years ago. It's like for every iPhone that's so intuitive to use, there's like 17 closets full of junk that just didn't wasn't intuitive, didn't work, was not user-friendly, you know? And so this is part of the process. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yes. And I think related to partners, this quote, I have a quote here I pulled up from Chambers who does a lot of work on that sustainability aspect, which I think is another way of saying like, it's actually going to be in practice and stay in practice is that he says the key to sustainability of evidence-based practice is continuously engaging invested partners, so your partners in your community and partners who are going to use it throughout the planning, implementation, and adaptation. So not just at the Mm -hmm. end. Yeah. We created this thing. Now figure out how to use it. Could you imagine if Apple did that with a phone? Oh my gosh. (laughs) We created this. Now figure out how to use it. Oh my God. It'd be like mutiny. It would be. It would be. It would just be wild. It's crazy. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. The system needs to be changed. And I think that being a part of that um, is, I think that this conference is creating a forum for people yeah. to have these discussions, I think, in a way yes. that I hope feels safe. Absolutely. And, you know, co- comfortable to have them because, I mean, sustainability is just not the end goal. It's the only goal. Mm. <laughs> right? Like, I, mean, I feel like goals, right? Like, like, oh, at the end, I'm like, no, no, I think it's the only thing we have, right? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, you think about the millions and millions of dollars that are invested into these projects. Yes. yes. For them to end when the project team leaves, it's like, what? Yes, absolutely. I've been so to blame for that. I've done that myself. Like you go in and you have this grant and you work with your schools. You're like, it's a five-year grant. And then you leave and it's like, they're like, what are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know. Our funding's over now. I know. It's like, oh, thank thank you for helping us create scientific findings. Oh my gosh. I've had that. That's one of those, like, you know, but you know better, you do better situations where I have a lot of regret in some of those ways of like, I thought I was just doing what I should do. And it's not the right way. And there is a better way. I think that's the other thing. There is right. a better way. Right. Um, and I think it is these partnerships. That's it's the backbone. Well, speaking Agreed. of partners, one of your clinician co-authors, Amy Wonka, couldn't make it for our conversation because yes. she's probably doing clinical practice. Um, uh-huh. she did record, <laughs> speaking of, she did record responses to a few questions that all include, you know, in the episode. Uh, but before I do that, can you introduce Amy and tell me how you know Amy? Sure. So I was so excited to get to know both Amy Wonka and Kate Grimbois at a, um, I was a guest with Kathy Binger on the SLP 
Nerdcast. And so it was actually Kathy Binger who connected us all together. And this was, I don't know, it might've been two years ago now, but since that initial podcast episode, I've just continued uh, my relationship with Kate and Amy because they're just so dedicated to closing the research practice gap. And as you said earlier, Tiffany, like this practice to research gap. So um, I'm going to introduce Amy for the listeners. So, and she will be a speaker at the conference. So exciting. So Amy has worked for 18 years as a speech language pathologist in the Northeast and Midwest regions of the U.S. And prior to becoming an SLP, she worked for several years as a one-to-one parapro and home service provider for individuals with complex communication needs. Amy has experience in home-based public school, non-public school and outpatient environments. Her passion for ongoing professional development, practical implementation of clinical research and lots of nerdy talks with like-minded friends help lead to the development of SLP Nerdcast, which is a podcast and course-based learning platform from Granbois Therapy and Consulting. Amy currently works full-time in a public school as an AAC specialist and part-time at SLP Nerdcast as co-host and director of clinical content. Oh, well, and Amy definitely doesn't sleep. So that makes a lot of sense. Seriously. There's no way. There's no way. (laughs) So many things going on. So excited. Uh, So we asked Amy, as a clinician, what gets you excited about implementation science? Oh, boy. Implementation science. Um, Yeah, I remember... Us. I remember when I learned that implementation science is a thing because I didn't know until I don't remember what year it was at the pandemic, but we were, you know, I was, I remember being at my kitchen table on Zoom uh, with you, Natalie, and Kathy Banger and Kate, and we were all talking, you know, just about research and, and you guys were telling us about implementation science and that there is actually this thing called implementation science where researchers are actually partnering with clinicians actively to both design and then conduct the research. And that blew my mind. I I can say it with confidence. It blew Kate's mind too. Um, because we, I think it had come up because we were just talking about the, the ridiculous lag between, I think it's, is it 17 years? I think it's 17 years ish anyway, between when research that's done that, you know, demonstrates evidence for one intervention effect or another, for that to trickle all the way down and become incorporated into clinical practice. That's like a super, that's a super long time um, for those of us who are providing school-based services. Like those clients have graduated, right? They're they're gone. Um, the, the clients for whom the research was being done when they were young, it's gone. Um, so that's that's wild. Um, so implementation science is obviously a, an answer to that. Implementation science uh, is a way to hopefully be addressing clinical questions that are meaningful and actionable for clinicians kind of from step one. And I know Natalie, we had you on the podcast and we and the SLP Nerdcast podcast. Um, and we had talked a fair amount just about implementation science. And it's not saying that research that's not conducted in this manner is is garbage, because it's certainly not. And there are things, you know, that that we as clinicians and obviously you as researchers want to be able to very tightly control in a way that you can't do in the real world setting of implementation science. So there's a place for all of the research, but I think you know, for me as a clinician, I'm very excited about implementation science because I don't have to do a lot of a lot of heavy work to translate the findings to how I can implement that in my day, right? So when I read an article, you know, and I work a lot in AAC, so I've read I've read a lot of Kathy's articles, like Kathy Pringer, Jennifer Kent Walsh. They're like names that. I've I've read most of their work, uh, you know, in part because they're answering the types of questions that I'm hoping to answer for my clients, right? So when I read their 
work that's been done in this really highly controlled setting, it's helpful because it tells me, okay, this might be an answer to a question I have about my client in the sense that this, a modification of this particular intervention might be really helpful because it was helpful for the people who they studied who were kind of like my client, but not quite in this setting that's not really like my setting, uh, but as close as I can find, you know, in the literature. And then I sort of have to figure out what pieces of their intervention package, let's say, I'm going to try and implement. um, And will that be helpful? I'm definitely not implementing it with fidelity like they did in their lab. uh, But I'm trying to take the things that they found and translate that in hopes that I will see similar positive changes for my client, right? So the idea of implementation science as a clinician is super exciting because it means that the researchers might be asking my specific question, first of all, which is very exciting. Um, And they are probably doing that work in an environment and within tasks that look much more similar to my work environment and my tasks that I want my clients to do. So when I read that paper, if they had, you know, findings that indicate something might be helpful for a client like my client in an environment like my environment, um, number one, I feel a little more confident that that those results might be more likely to translate to my client and my client's environment or environments. Uh, But also, I don't have to go through and kind of pick apart the pieces that I think are feasible or that I think could possibly translate and then wonder if 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 I pulled apart some meaningful pieces at all, right? Because the actual research is more likely to have been conducted in a way where I could maybe even pick up the entire treatment package and just like try and replicate it for my students. So um, yeah, it's it's super exciting. It's super exciting to think that also we're just going to be having through implementation science, we're going to be having more ongoing conversations between researchers and clinicians, which I think is going to be better for everybody. I mean, I, I feel like every conversation I have with you, I learn something meaningful. Um, and, and if nothing else, you know, and, and we don't, work with the same client population, you know, for the most part. So, you know, I think that having these ongoing conversations, number one, breaks down the power differential a bit that that we talked about in the paper, but also just helps us all to better appreciate what what each other is doing um, and hopefully will help create more and more research that is going to be more readily translatable to to folks like me who are working, you know, in clinical environments and we want to be doing the best. We want to be doing what's best for our clients. We want to be working in ways that are time efficient. I mean, we want to be doing a good job. Um, and the reality is implementation science and studies that involve collaboration between clinicians and researchers, I think is going to be a huge step in allowing the clinicians like me to more easily um, provide high quality services. So it's, it's super exciting stuff. Yeah. And then we asked Amy, tell us about your experiences working on the Clinician Research Collaborative Power paper that we've been talking about in the episode. Were there any, was there anything unexpected and some of the highs and lows from working on that paper? Yeah, so collaborating on the power differential paper was, well, first of all, it was super cool because as a primarily school-based clinician, it was something that I never thought I would have the opportunity to do. So that was that was pretty neat. Um, and thank you for including me in that process. Uh, and it was it was a really interesting learning experience because you know I think this probably is is not at all new information for people who do this all the time. So people like both of you, but, um, you know, as somebody who's never really thought too deeply about the process through which articles that I read and consume get published, um, being on the other end of that was was very interesting. Um, and I think, you know, some of the things that really stood out to me through the process were just the number of revisions and the granular level of some of those revisions um, 
was sort of was sort of surprising. So for people, anybody listening who's who's more like me and hasn't done this before, um, you know, basically you you write your paper and you submit it, and then you're getting like all of these different rounds of feedback. And the feedback could be as as specific as like, have you thought about including this article? Or it could lead to like essentially an entire rewrite of sort of the thesis. Um, and that goes on. That's like a process <laughs> that goes on. Um, and I think, you know, one of my takeaways from that experience as a participant was just, wow, you know, I I knew that a lot of work went into the creation of of this content, but I I didn't have an appreciation for just how much work that was. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, and that was sort of a learning experience there. I think another very interesting piece for me was the publishing, how how all of that worked. So, you know, the the people who write the paper don't get paid to write the paper. This, I mean, I suppose you guys do because you're funded through your institutions and what have you. But um, it's it's not like they wrote a book and got paid to write the book or something like that. Um, and then open access that was very interesting. Um, I've never while I while I really appreciate open access because once once you leave kind of grad school, you sort of lose access to a lot of the journals um, and articles that you have access to as a student. Um, so for somebody like me who's working in a school, you know, my public school doesn't say, oh, and here you go. Here's how you get on free full text for EBSCO host. You know, that's that's not a thing. Um, so open access articles are awesome for me because I can read them. Um, and, you know, through doing the Nerdcast, I've learned you can actually also email the authors and they will generally share uh, their papers with you. But as somebody who, you know, earlier in my career, for most of my career, uh, did not realize that was a thing, I felt that I was pretty limited to open access. Um, and the the authors fund that. Um, so so those were two pretty big eye openers for me. Um, I guess in both that they were elements I hadn't really given much deep thought to prior to being involved um, in the process. So just the actual sheer amount of workload that goes into the creation of the papers that we're reading, uh, as well as how open access comes to be. So all in all, it was it was really it was really cool um, and a very eye opening experience to be able to be a part of you know the creation of an article like that. So it was very neat. Now I'm going to be mindful of our time uh, and our listeners' time. I always am so grateful that they take the time to listen to this podcast. Thank you, listeners. Uh, I have always two final questions that I ask. So, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? So I'm thrilled because as you were talking about your partnerships in the schools, I have very similar partnerships in nursing homes right now. So I'm working with nursing home, three nursing homes right now, probably four in the near future um, out in California um, with the most fabulous SLPs and nursing assistants that you have ever laid eyes on. And we are working on implementing um, a communication partner kind of coaching program. It's called Dementia Collaborative Coaching and Communication Kits. And the idea is that we're working to improve communication for people living with dementia in nursing homes. And I'm very grateful to be sponsored by the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory. And they're funding non-pharmacological trials for people living with dementia. But it's a specific kind of study design called pragmatic clinical trials. So the trial has to happen in the real world and you can only use like real world resources. So you can't really hire research staff to collect your data and you're not really supposed to use measures that are burdensome to the staff. So I'm in some doing some preliminary work with these partners right now in hopes to amp up to conduct one of these trials in the next couple of years or so. So it's really exciting. And I mean, what these nursing homes have been through that anybody even wants to say the word research after COVID. I mean, it's truly, I don't have words 
to express my gratitude for them, honestly. Absolutely. I mean, wow, that's, that's amazing. I, I can't wait to read about that work. I think the pragmatic trials, that's ugh, amazing to be able to do that work and to know that uh, my understanding of pragmatic trials is if, you know, you show an effect with pragmatic trials, you should have a pretty quick uptake to practice. That's the hope. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because mm -hmm. you don't have to pull out any resources per se. You've worked with the resources in the context and shown that it, that it works. So that's, that's amazing. I, I, wow. So cool. Thank you for sharing. And I'll be watching that uh, and have you back to the podcast to tell us about it. Yay, talk about fun. like, yeah, talk about dementia and, and all of the work that you're doing in that area. So the last question I ask is what is your favorite book from childhood or now? Oh my gosh. I have to tell you about my favorite childhood book, which is from the mix up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. And it's this little girl and her brother and they run away to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and like they live there um, and like they stay. And I just, um, I read that over and over as a kid. It's kind of a quirky thing. I don't know if anybody of your listeners will probably like, what is that? But maybe there's one or two that have read that. Um, but that's awesome. That yeah. sounds really fun. Yeah. And like, I wanted to run away to the Met. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't um, want to do that? Right. I mean, Everyone wants to do that. Adult <laughs> and child. <laughs> right. Exactly. And now we have the book to do it. I'll link yeah. it in the show notes because I. Oh my gosh, how yeah. fun. Okay. And my it. kids always benefit from this because I like to get the books that we talk about. And they oh, go now. They're like, oh, if I tell them I recorded something, like, what book did they talk about? <laughs> oh, that's so fun. I think they'll like it. I hope. I hope it holds up. I never know. My kids are always like, no, nah, you know, but you never know. <laughs> I know. You never know. That's the issue. You never know. That's the key. It's always a hit and miss sometimes. Well, Natalie, thank you for your time. I am just so excited to talk to a true implementation scientist as yourself. And you've been thinking about this for so long and you've written some amazing papers. And I'm very excited that you're going to be headlining the conference. And I'm excited to hear your presentation. And the conference is April 27th and 28th. It's online. It has a low price point. We try to make it accessible. And if you can't attend, there's recordings afterwards. Um, and I think you know, learning from your research practice partnerships and others at the conference is so exciting. And I'll leave a link to the conference registration in the show notes and on the website. And I'm really hoping to see some of the listeners there at the conference. So thank you again, Natalie. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. And just so that everybody knows that you really put your money where you're mouth was Tiffany and you've got some clinician partners in response to that feedback and almost every single session if not all of them for this conference has a clinician partner who is working out there in the real world so it's just thank you for your leadership and voice and putting this on I think it's super exciting check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.